You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you have been able to listen to the other teachers who taught about and refuted the theory of imminence. In this episode, I will revisit that topic. There's never any harm in a little bit of repetition and amplification. Uh, The theory of imminence demands the asking of a question. Did the early church believers think that Jesus could return at any moment? This idea is one of the cornerstones of the pre-trib view of the rapture. Their definition of imminence is basically that Christ can return for the church at any moment, and there is no prophesied event that must occur before that. In recent months, some of the pre-trib proponents have even suggested that the rapture could occur and there yet be an extended period of time before the 70th week of Daniel could start. So the question remains, does the Bible teach that Christ's return could occur at any moment? I like to answer this question um, by presenting the nine factors that refute that theory. Imminence can be dispelled by nine separate factors, or what I like to call nine blows to the theory of imminence. So I'll jump right into it. Blow number one, Peter must grow old and die. According to John 21, 18 and 19, Jesus told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you don't want to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. How imminent could the Lord's return be for Peter, who was told by Jesus himself that he would grow old and die a martyr's death? Would Peter be expecting an any-moment return of Jesus next year, the year after, in five years? Did Jesus teach that he could come back at any moment and tell Peter at the same time that he would grow old? I think not. How can one justify the act of the Holy Spirit communicating through the Apostle John the fact of this prophecy that Peter would grow old and at the same time communicate through others? that Jesus could come back at any moment? Much later, in fact, almost 40 years later, Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, And I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Now, here is some imminence for us. Peter had grown old. The year is approximately 67 AD, and Peter knows that any day now he could be captured and let forth to die. 
what Peter also knows is that Jesus would not come back before that happens. He wrote, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. In fact, Peter even mentions the coming of the Lord as he remembers being an eyewitness to his majesty that will be manifested at the day of the Lord return of Jesus when he comes in power and great glory. But he does not mention imminence. Instead, he tells them to keep in mind the basic truths of Christianity that they've learned so that after he dies, they will be able to use them for their own encouragement and protection in the face of the huge number and variety of false teachers that are attacking the Christian church. No, Peter does not teach eminence in chapter 1. In chapter 3, he says an astonishing thing. He says that there will come a time that can be designated as the last days, uh, days considerably distant from the initial promise given by Jesus and repeated by the apostles that Jesus was coming back. Thus, as time has gone by, the mockers will be motivated to say, where is the promise of his coming? Yes, so much time will have gone by that the mockers will have a heyday of ridicule concerning the promise of Christ's return. So Peter reminds them that God's timetable is not based on man's perceptions of days and years. He says that God is not slow as man views slowness, but that he is actually patient, waiting so that mankind might have a maximum amount of time to come to a change of mind. And then he repeats the well-known warning, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, to indicate that many will be unprepared for its arrival and the return of Jesus. The use of this term originated based on the parable Jesus taught at Matthew 24. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect it. This exhortation and warning follows upon his teaching that when you see the signs of the great tribulation, you will know that his coming is right at the door. Just like we know that summer is near when we see leaves on the trees. But he immediately tells us that no one knows the day or hour of his coming. In other words, we can know the season of his coming, when he will be right at the door, but we cannot know the exact day of his coming. So we are warned to be watchful and alert so that we might be prepared when God brings that arrival of Jesus in his own timing, according to 1 Timothy 6.15. Jesus did not teach imminence here. He taught that the events of the tribulation would precede his coming and that once those events transpire, we would know that he is right at the door and we should be on the alert. For you do not know which day our Lord is coming. He will come like a thief only to those who are unprepared. But for the believer walking in fellowship with God, walking in the light, they are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Paul wrote at 1 Thessalonians 5. Accordingly, Paul immediately follows that up with an exhortation to all believers, including himself. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and balanced. 
The exhortation then is to watchfulness and preparedness, not in view of an any moment coming of Jesus, but in view of the danger of not being ready when the signs come on the scene. All the words used to encourage our watchfulness communicate the attitude of expectation and devotion and the strong emotion of longing in view of his promised arrival, not in view of an any moment arrival. Blow number two. Paul must witness in Rome, Acts 23, 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, that's Paul's side, and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Unless, he adds, I decide to come back first. Then, of course, you won't get to Rome. Such a little idea packed into this verse. Paul is told that he is going to witness at Rome. That means it is before the Lord returns. Jesus did not say when this would come about, but the promise stands on its own merits. And for anyone who has, has uh, looking at any moment rapture ideas, the promise would certainly destroy that idea. Now, while Paul is waiting to get to Rome, what does he teach others about the imminent return of Jesus? Maybe he will have to keep it hush-hush, since now he cannot depend on it himself. Maybe he never had that idea in the first place. After all, he's the one who wrote 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which says that the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. The same basic promise is repeated at Acts 27.24, where we find for this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage. For I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground first on a certain island. Um... But, of course, the rapture might occur while they are stuck on the island and make the promise of God a lie. And how long were they on the island? According to Acts 26, 11, And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. Three months for Paul to be expecting an any-moment rapture. Well, no, because God had told Paul that he had to go to Rome. What then of all the believers throughout the rest of the world? Where is the reality of their hope in an any-moment rapture? Were they still to look for such a thing? Indeed, would God the Holy Spirit be communicating to others that they should be looking for an any-moment rapture, while at the same time having revealed to Paul that there would not be one? Of course not. God does not give conflicting information to his people. Blow number three. John will have additional public ministry beyond writing the book of the Revelation. According to Revelation 10, 8 through 11, And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it, eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. 
And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Revelation chapter 10 is a parenthetical chapter that deals personally with John and specifically with his ministry beyond the writing of the book of the Revelation. This is a personal promise to John that he will prophesy again, which suggests a ministry beyond the scope of the present vision he has seen. Accordingly, the Lord's return could not be imminent to John, nor would the Holy Spirit teach imminency through him. He may not know exactly when and where his future ministry is, but he should know that the Lord will not be coming back first. Furthermore, as I will cover in blow number nine, John has shown that many technical things must occur before there can even be the rise of the beast. Blow number four, a specific departure from the faith and the revealing of the man of lawlessness must precede the return of Jesus, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This blow connects only if one will recognize the proper correlation of terms established within the context. The subject is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. It should be clear that Paul views these two events as taking place at the same time. And then he makes the same connection at 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, where we find in verse 15, he, uh, that is, we who remain until the coming of the Lord, and then at verse 17, we shall be caught up together in the clouds for a meeting with the Lord in the air. Those two items viewing together. And at 2 Thessalonians 2, he makes the same correlation. He, had, uh, here, he addresses the concern of the believers that the day of the Lord has already arrived. Accordingly, they have been given the impression by false teachings that not only has the coming arrived, but the gathering taught to them in Paul's first letter has also occurred. So concerning this coming and gathering, Paul sa uh, says that they should not be disturbed about the idea that the day of the Lord has come. They pay no attention to the false teachings they have heard. He then very clearly tells them that this coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him, known as the day of the Lord, will not come until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That means that the man of lawlessness, the beast of Revelation, and the one so often designated as the Antichrist will come on the scene of human history and be revealed as the great rebel against God before the rapture of the church. And since there is usually little dispute that the man of lawlessness is revealed as the oppressive beast of the revelation at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week and not before it, it should be clear that such a revealing will precede the coming of the Lord. This issue revolves around whether or not one has the personal honesty and objectivity to make the proper identification of the three terms involved as referring to the same event. It also depends on personal honesty and uh, interpretation to realize that the word apostasy means just that, apostasy. But that's another issue. Blow number five, 
the Great Commission. Jesus said that the church would accomplish a worldwide gospel proclamation before he comes back. Uh, Matthew 28, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the general mandate for worldwide evangelism and probably in itself does not really mitigate against imminence. However, in association with Acts 1.8, there appears to be another one of those things which must be carried out before Jesus can or will come back. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, we know that the church was scattered away from Judea as a result of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen. And the church began ministering throughout the regions of Samaria. This took place about 36 AD and certainly fulfills the words of Jesus uh, at Acts 1.8. But the question needs to be asked, could Jesus have returned before that migration of the church to Samaria? And if so, what then is the purpose and reliability of the words of Jesus at Acts 1.8. Furthermore, Jesus said, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, which did not take place for several years later, Paul informs us that it did indeed happen as he writes in about 59 AD concerning the Romans, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And in about 63 AD, the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in Colossians uh, 1.6, the gospel which has come to you just as also in all the world. Now, let us remember that what was said of the apostles by the Jews of Thessalonia in about 54 AD. These men who have upset the world have come here also. But before these men took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, say between 30 and 50 AD, if indeed the above passages indicate that to be the case, could Jesus have come back? And if those passages do not indicate such a spread of the gospel, has Acts 1.8 then not been fulfilled till later, if indeed at all? And if that be the case, could Jesus have come back any time, since his very own words would still be unfulfilled? Then we have Matthew 10.16-23 through 23, with special focus on verse 23. But whenever they persecute you in this city, to the next for truly i say to you you shall not finish with the cities of israel until the son of man comes this is similar to acts 1 8 in that it indicates a certain accomplishment before the return of jesus if at a certain point in time they are only part way through reaching the cities of israel are they to be looking for in any moment return of jesus i think not let's back up to matthew 10 18 and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my namesake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. <clears throat> In view of this, can they have been looking for in any moment return of Jesus during the six plus years when they were ministering in Judea? No, there needs to be a worldwide ministry of the church before Jesus will come back. Indeed, Jesus again tells us at Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, 
and then the end shall come. Of course, once again, this requires having a certain understanding of the context, the understanding that the end correlates with Matthew 10, 23, where Jesus relates it to the Son of Man comes, and with Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days is when they will see the Son of Man coming. And the understanding that the coming of Jesus that is in view here is the only coming of Jesus that he himself taught about. But that's another subject, too. However, I suggest that all the passages in the New Testament refer to the one and only coming of Jesus when he will come in the clouds of the sky and gather his elect from the earth. Anyway, I trust that it can be seen to be unlikely in view of the promises and commands for a worldwide evangelistic outreach that the Christians of the early church did not believe in in any moment return of Jesus. Expectancy does not require imminence. Blow number six, the predicted progress of historical trends, which must take place as the beginning of birth pains, militates against the idea of imminency. Mankind has always been preoccupied with the future, and of course the disciples of Jesus were no exception. A few days before the crucifixion, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? The answers of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 give us an outline for the history of the church up until the gathering of his elect out from this world at the arrival of the day of the Lord, which is the event, of course, that triggers the end of the age. In Matthew 24, 4, the possibility of deception requires specific information so that the church might be oriented to the progress of history and not be distracted from her evangelistic purpose. Now, if the church, or more specifically individual believers, get too distracted and discouraged at the progress of evil in the world, they just might lose sight of the true objective for their continued uh, life here on the earth, which, of course, is to showcase the character and plan of God. And so we have the Olivet Discourse, wherein Jesus orients us to the historical trends that will occur during the church age, leading up to his return at the day of the Lord. Verse 6, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not disturbed, for it must happen, but it's not yet the end. Now, these wars and rumors, they've been occurring since 30 AD and are to be viewed as general trends without placing any specific significance upon them. In fact, Jesus calls them the beginning of birth pains at verse 8. Beginning birth pains are those intermittent pushes and shoves which indicate that a pregnancy is moving toward its end. However, before that end can occur, there must be the breaking of the water and the final birth pains, which are the body's actions to bring that baby into the world and the end of the pregnancy. Imminency is excluded by the fact that Jesus says these things must happen, and yet that is not the end. Now, once the beginning birth pains occur, the idea of imminency would in that regard be presence. But that is the whole idea. There is no imminency until the birth process moves beyond the beginning birth pains. The pregnancy in this image is God's plan to establish the Messiah's reign on the earth via his return at the day of the Lord. The beginning birth pains are those historical trends which progress from Messiah's first coming until the revelation of the beast 
the man of lawlessness, at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. The final birth pains take place during the oppressive reign of the beast, which is called the tribulation. The end of the pregnancy is when Jesus arrives in the clouds of the sky in power and great glory, as stated at Matthew 24, 29 through 31. At verse 6, Jesus said, the end is not yet. Now this clarifies that when the wars and rumors occur, the oriented Christian should not be deceived into thinking that it portends the end of the age. Now to explain why it is not yet the end, Jesus amplifies that Matthew 24, 7 and Luke 21, 10 and 11. Here he describes trends that take place on a much larger scale than the ones just mentioned. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, there are two things in this passage which tell us that these larger scale trends are those which will occur after about 70 AD. The idea of kingdom against kingdom, conflicts, does not describe the conflicts that took place within the Roman Empire prior to 70 AD. And uh, at Luke 21, 12, the phrase, but before all these things. Here Jesus backs up in his discourse in order to describe the events leading up to and culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. By saying before all these things, Jesus is placing the following information before the larger scale trends just described. And so chronologically, these events should be viewed first. Blow number seven. The prediction of a future destruction of Jerusalem denies the doctrine of imminence. Luke 21, 8 through 24. Now, once we recognize the 30 to 70 AD time context for Luke 21, 12 through 19, it should be clear that Jesus picks up at verses 20 through 24 with the siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Rome. This event actually becomes the point of contact and overlap between AD 70 and the future oppression of the beast during the tribulation. However, that point of contact, uh, contact and overlap is, is not chronological. Now, once again, we must be very careful in recognizing the precision in the words of Jesus to distinguish between these two events and at the same time realize that he used similarity of language to describe both. Now, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and those who are in the country don't enter because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. It's Luke 21, 20 and 22. All things fulfilled doesn't refer to the entire plan of God for Jerusalem, just specifically that which involves a worldwide dispersion. A worldwide dispersion is not what happens in the yet future oppression by the beast, nor what happens when the nations surround Jerusalem during the Armageddon campaign. This prophecy of Jesus specifically fulfills Old Testament passages that deal with the destruction of the city and the dispersion of the people, such as Leviticus 26:27, Deuteronomy 28:49 and following. It deals with the national discipline that God will administer upon the Jewish people because of the rejection of their Messiah. Matthew 21, 33 and 23, 37. That's why the term days of vengeance is used at Luke 21, 22. He continued, 
Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be a great calamity upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The Roman army under Titus besieged the city 70 AD and on the 14th of the month Nisan until its fall, 134 days later on the 8th of Elul. Then after 70 AD, until the end times, there will be war, just as Jesus said at Matthew 24, 6, and a decree of desolations, which, will, uh, which includes the famines and earthquakes of Matthew 24, 7. And the plagues mentioned at Luke 21, 11, it should be clear that there could not be any, uh, rather at any moment, rapture, because this prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem had, hadn't taken place yet. And although disciples did not know the year of that destruction, they certainly could understand that Jesus was not coming back first. However, we should understand that they were probably unaware of the details of his coming, even though he taught so exclusively and intensively on it, simply because it needed clarification and the ministry of the Spirit to bring to remembrance what they had been taught, as Jesus told them at John 16, 12. The expectation of the early church prior to the fall of Jerusalem concerned the events surrounding the fall and the events that followed it. The events that Jesus described at Luke 21 had to occur before the fall of Jerusalem, and they could and, and, and indeed would take place from the very beginning after the formal arrival of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Accordingly, the fall of Jerusalem, which would be uh, portended by the city being surrounded by armies, could happen any time after the persecution activity began. Furthermore, there is no specific time period allotted to the time after the fall of Jerusalem, so that technically the Lord could return during that time. In other words, the signs of summer, which are the events of the tribulation, could happen at any time after the fall of Jerusalem, but not prior to that fall. The day of the Lord's arrival of Jesus then was not imminent before the fall of Jerusalem. Blow number eight. Israel must be restored as a nation for Daniel 9.27 to be fulfilled. Of course, this is predicted on, uh, this is, predicated on the view that accepts Daniel 9.27 as referring to a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel that follows her uh, and allows her to engage in her ancient sacrifices and tabernacle worship. Based on Daniel 9.27 and the prophet's words, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, pre-tribulations have historically and continuously insisted that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel to protect her for seven years. It is that event which triggers what is commonly referred to as the tribulation period. But from the defeat of the Jewish nation in AD 70 until the emergence of the modern state on May 14, 1948, no Jewish nation or representative government existed. Now, how Lindsay has written, the events leading up to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, are strewn throughout the Old and the New Testament prophets like pieces of a great jigsaw puzzle. The key piece of the puzzle which was missing until our time 
was that Israel had to be back in her ancient homeland, reestablished as a nation. When this occurred in May 1948, the whole prophetic scenario began to fall together with dizzying speed. It would have been impossible for the Antichrist to sign a covenant of protection with a non-existent nation. An any-moment rapture, therefore, was not possible before the modern state of Israel was resurrected out of the ashes of the Second World War. Israel could have become a nation uh, during any generation, but the rapture could not have preceded that event. Blow number nine. For the Antichrist to implement his 666 economic system, it would require a technology that did not exist and could not exist for centuries. This aspect of the beast's reign was not revealed to the church until the close of the first century when John wrote the book of the Revelation. The type of control described at Revelation 13, 16 through 17 simply could not be possible at that time. Only in these technically advanced times do we see the mechanism in place that could accomplish such a global control. It reads, and he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor and the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Accordingly, there could be no return of the Lord prior to such a technically advanced time in history as we are witnessing today. Thus I conclude these nine blows to imminence and suggest that in the same way that the second coming was not and could not be imminent before 70 AD, it is not and cannot be imminent after 70 AD until we see the signs of summer, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place in Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 